Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Uh, some of you know I'm just just back this weekend from um, Africa. A little jet lagged. It occurred to me that I could fall asleep during my sermon, which would be a first. <laughs> some of you have already fallen asleep during my sermons. Not a first for you, but. Uh, it's good to be back, and I, I'm very excited about the work that we're doing uh, in Ghana and Kuve. Very strategic, very thoughtful, good people doing good work. We we'll look forward to telling you more about that in the coming uh, weeks. So I, I've shared this story before, but it so perfectly illustrates my point. I'm going to share it again. It's about 20 years old, maybe not quite, but when our uh, youngest son was still in a high chair, uh, one day I was at his end of the table trying to get him to finish the food on his tray. Some of you have had that experience. And he was not having anything to do with it. And he kept saying something. And uh, I couldn't for the life of me understand what he was saying. And finally, Sherry explained. She says, he's saying, tastes like barbecue. I'm like, okay, it was green beans. It's the winter. It's like, you know... I go, I don't get that. I go, okay, it tastes like barbecue, good, bonus, so eat, tastes like barbecue. And he's stiff-arming me, he doesn't want to do any of this. And finally, I look back at Sherry and she says, barbecue is his word for burnt. I go, oh, wait a minute, I'm the one that does all the grilling around here. This little twerp is indicting my cooking, so... That experience of not really understanding what's going on, have a moment, having a moment of insight, which is followed then five seconds later or five days later by the sudden realization of, wait a minute, this is on me. I'm the one being indicted by this event. This story was told in order for me to understand something. That is a very common experience as we work our way through the parables. So the parables is a, is a literary genre that uh, we find throughout the Bible. Jesus is the master of parables. He tells, depends on how you count, but about 40 of them. Uh, about 30% of the words we have from Jesus are, are in the form of parable. And uh, we're starting this new series for the next month uh, out of Luke 14 and 15. The heart, in some, some would say the heart of the third gospel are these two chapters and the powerful parables that Jesus tells. Now, again, Jesus is not the only one that tells parables. Uh, they're found in the Old Testament. Perhaps uh, the, the most telling parable that helps us understand how parables work is the one that was told by Nathan to David. David's the king, lots of power, lots of wives, and he has recently uh, taken another man's wife, Uriah. He, he slept with Bathsheba. It gets complicated because she gets pregnant, and Uriah's away at battle. He eventually has Uriah killed. It's a, it's a dark spot on David's record, but he's covered it up, and, and it's working so far. When Nathan comes in and says, King David, I have a story to tell you. Something has happened. You've got to hear about it. There's this, there's this man uh, who, had, who had a lamb that he loved and he cared for and he fed the lamb off of his own plate and this, this lamb was so precious to him. And David, who's a shepherd, of course, would buy into this. He would have known what it was like to have a lamb that you particularly cared for. And he said, but then this, this rich guy 
who's got all the power comes and, and he wants to entertain some guests. He wants to serve lamb at this special meal. And so he doesn't want to kill any of his own lambs. He's got lots of flocks that he can choose from. But instead he, he takes this, this poor man's lamb and he slaughters it. And David is incensed. He's like, who is this jerk? Let me at him. He's got he's to repay this fourfold and all. So, so David completely buys in. At which point Nathan says, you, my king, are this man. And then suddenly it comes into clarity for David. Oh my goodness, right? He couldn't see it without sort of being taken into a world that was a little bit different that he could relate to. But then he gets a new perspective on what's going on. And that's the way uh, the parables are designed to work. So uh, you could take a class at Trinity down the street, um, a whole graduate class on the parables, and not begin to scratch the surface of all that is available to be communicated here. Uh, so my little quick summary is, is not going to be adequate, but, but before we begin this series, there's, a, there's three things I think you have to understand uh, as we launch in. Number one, Jesus uses parables because sometimes... A straight recitation of facts is not enough. Now, we're sort of living in a postmodern moment, so some of this has changed. But we like to think we are people of reason, right? Just the truth. I want to be objective. Just the facts. I'm going to make my decision based on that. Uh, And sometimes that works, right? Water freezes at 32 degrees. Springfield is the capital of Illinois. The Civil War happened in the 1800s. I mean, these are statement of facts, But to hear that the Civil War happened in the 1800s doesn't help you understand the Civil War, right? You cannot begin to understand the drama and the heartache and the the passion and the the energy and the bloodshed. In order to really understand the Civil War, you have to hear stories about it, about families, and about the crisis in our country. And, And in a similar way, to say, God is gracious and he loves you. It doesn't carry all the texture and passion and energy that uh, stories might convey. And so uh, Jesus will frequently use parables in part because they communicate at a different level. Um, Now, please understand, some people, it's common to say a parable is a little story with a big lesson or a parable is a... is a, is a, it makes a morality point, right? It's a, it's a simple, clever little children's story that, that Jesus uses because it unfolds bigger ideas. You know, you could say that about Aesop's fables, and these are radically different events. Uh, so it's, it's not fair or accurate to say that a parable illustrates a point. It would be more accurate to say a parable is the point. And, and we get invited into a different world. We get invited into a setting that is relatively familiar. These are ordinary, everyday situations. But then, when we look around from this different perspective, suddenly some things begin to light up for us. And we see things we might not otherwise have seen. And as a general rule, <laughs> what we see, we don't like. It, they, they, are, they are an indictment of us in different ways. So, Mr. Rogers famously would tell children's stories with little lessons on the end of them, right? 
Nobody wanted to kill Mr. Rogers at the end of one of his stories. Well, I don't know, maybe they did, but, <laughs> but when people hear Jesus and when they finally get it, right, they are often furious and they want to put him to death. So these are, these are powerful, hard-hitting uh, stories and, and they're coming at us. Right? So you have to understand, Jesus is, is using this genre in order to communicate things to us that we probably don't want to hear and can't get if you just simply state it. Second thing you have to understand about parables is that you really have to understand the context to appreciate what's going on. Now, that's generally true with Bible study. Right? One of the first things we're doing in Bible study, we want to understand what the original author intended the original reader to understand. So you have to do some historical work and some, some word studies and other things to, to understand how the original reader would have interpreted what's going on. In some genres, that's relatively easy to do. In others, not so much. The Proverbs are difficult. So are the parables. You could say that they're both like a joke, and some people don't have enough context to get the joke. And so we have to do our work for these things to open up for us. Famously, the prodigal son is, uh, is a parable that many people know. And I hear people explain the prodigal son as if there is some inherent promise here that wayward children will find their way back home. Now, maybe wayward children will find their way back home. I hope so. But that's not what the parable of the prodigal son is about at all. Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. He tells a story in which it appears initially as though the bad guy is this young son who takes all the money and goes and blows it. But in reality, that guy repents and is reconciled to the father who is a God figure. It's the older brother who represents the self-righteous religious snit, the Pharisees, that really comes under fire. And it's the, it's the Pharisees that Jesus is going after. And many people don't see that. You have to understand the context of everything that is playing out in order to interpret these parables accurately. So we're, we've got to dig into the background. The third thing to understand about the parables that Jesus tells is that they are unique in a couple ways. First of all, they're unique in that his parables are about the kingdom of God. And he is, he is communicating, again, not illustrating a point, he is, he is communicating deep truth about God's kingdom and about the way things ultimately will prove to work when people recognize Jesus as fully as prophet, priest, and king and where everything is ordered correctly. So these are, these are filled with spiritual insight. Secondly, almost the opposite. The, the parables of Jesus are, are designed in part so that people don't understand them. Now this is not a popular point to make, but it's an important point to make. Uh, many people you read, I, you know, in my prep, I, I continue to run across people that were saying, the parables... Jesus teaches in parables because stories are more powerful and preachers should just use stories because that's what Jesus did. Well, if we listen to what Jesus says, 
He says, Matthew 13, somewhat in Luke 14, when the, when, the, when the disciples come to him and they go, Jesus, you know, these parables you're telling, yeah, people don't get them, they don't understand them. It works a lot better when you just do the miracles, we get bigger crowds, we, you know, it's working better with the miracles. Jesus says, yeah, I don't want everybody to understand them. I'm telling them and will interpret them for you so you understand them. But I'm moving on. And there's some people that I'm moving on from now. Right? So now I have great confidence that the offer of God for eternal life and forgiveness of sins is wide open for all of us. For no, no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, God will meet us. He is gracious and he's loving. But, but you have to understand there is an expiration date to that offer. And and we are seeing that happen here with some people. So John the Baptist shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near, you got to get ready, you got to get ready, you're not ready, the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus shows up, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, it's me. And, and now he's saying, okay, for two and a half years I've been walking among these people, I've been teaching, I've been, I've been performing miracles, and you know what? Time to move on. They've said no, they've said no, they've said no, they've said no. Okay, I'm moving on. And the offer will be extended to new people. So this is a, there's, a, there's a hard truth here. And uh, the, the, the parables are often, not all of them are interpreted by, by Jesus for us. But they're often uh, interpreted for us, and there's powerful truth here. But this is, this is rough stuff. Some of it is rough stuff. So... Uh, fasten your seatbelts. So we turn now to the first uh, of the parables that is in this little collection here in Luke 14 and 15. Uh, and verse 1 of chapter 14 sets the context again. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So we're two and a half years into Christ's three-year public ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem, right? He's been traveling, walking from Galilee to Jerusalem. Luke gives about 10 chapters to this walk and all the teaching that Jesus does as he's making the walk. As he gets closer to Jerusalem, out of the, the, the sticks in the north, as he gets closer to the big city, the crowds get bigger, and the noise and the interest in Jesus grows louder. The Pharisees don't like this. They're getting increasingly frustrated, and so they set a trap for him. We looked at this last spring. They set a trap. Specifically, they, uh, they invite him to a, a dinner in which they have planted a sick man. It's on the Sabbath, and they want to see whether or not Jesus will heal the sick man on the Sabbath. If he does, right, they're going to take pictures, tweet out this message, right, he's a fraud. Look at he violates, he violates God's laws. Jesus sees all of this. He knows what's going on. And so he very adeptly, he violates their laws, but not God's laws, right? Jesus is without sin. He doesn't violate God's laws. He violates their laws. And then he flips this around on them, and he says, you guys are such losers, right? You are going to let your own self-made rules stand in the way of helping somebody who's in need. And, right, you know, shame on all of you for doing this. So we looked at that quite a while ago, uh, Luke 14, verse 1. We're now skipping down to verse 7 because he's, he's not done um, disrupting the party. 
So he's, he's going after a couple, uh, a couple specific groups. So he starts with uh, the seating chart of all things. So uh, Luke writes, when he noticed uh, Jesus, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So apparently nobody thought to put a little this seat reserve sign on some of the chairs. The important people show up late because, of course, they're important, and so they're advertising, i got more important things to do than to show up early. You were waiting for me. But awkwardly, there are some lesser people sitting in those seats. And so the host has to intervene and go to some people and say, you know what, uh, could you go sit at the kids' table? This seat is going to uh, is gonna go to somebody more important. And it's all very awkward. And uh, so we, of course, are way past something as foolish as this. We do uh, put a lot of appropriate credence in what kind of phone somebody has or a car or... Uh, you know, where their watch was made, or the label on their jeans, or, you know, titles. Are they an associate, or are they an employee, or are they an intern? Are they a vice president, or a senior vice president, or an executive senior vice president? I mean, all these things are very important. Do you have a signed parking space, or do you have to, you know, be with the unwashed masses and park someplace else? So, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of the things that we get worked up about. And they were getting worked up over who sat where at a prominent social event. Uh, if you get worked up over where you get seated, if you get worked up over titles and, you know, like wh- what, what, I don't know, what club or something somebody belongs to or you don't belong to, or, I mean, if those things matter to you, if you get agitated over those things, then you're doing something wrong. And you need to lean into the gospel even more. And as we lean into the gospel, what happens is we get, a, we get a, a clearer picture of how big God is and powerful and awesome and beautiful and gracious and loving. <laughs> and, and our own brokenness comes into focus and we realize, oh my goodness, right, my best efforts when I'm willing to give them, are really flawed. And most of the time, I'm not willing to give them. I don't even want to do the right thing. And I'm, I am just a broken person. And this isn't, a, this isn't a heavy, depressed kind of statement. This is just like, wow, God is here and I'm here. And, and he accepts me as I is. He, he knows the worst about me and he's for me. And then that liberates us to say, I want to be that kind of gracious person who extends that kind of grace to other people as opposed to being somebody that cares over, hey, you took my parking spot, or hey, you did this, or we just, it, it reframes things. It's very liberating. And so if you are wrapped up in these kinds of things, I just want to say you're doing something wrong. So 
Jesus is pointing out to the religious leaders. And he will point this out repeatedly. He will say to the crowds, don't follow these guys. We think of the Pharisees as being jerks because we see them through Jesus' eyes because we see them through the Gospels. In point of fact, the Pharisees enjoyed wide favor with people because they were zealously religious and they seemed to be doing everything that the law required. And so people looked up to them and Jesus says, no, look, this long prayer that this guy is praying, that's just all so that you'll think he's something important. And they want the important seats, right? They're so small that where they sit matters to them. Don't follow those people. There's a whole different way to see uh, the world and what's going on. So Jesus, uh, Jesus starts by going after the seating, uh, how, they're, how they're seating. So he's not done because the person who would not, <laughs> the person who would not be offended by the whole, where did you sit, uh, would be the host because his seat would be assigned. He's the host. He's at the head table, right? So he's sort of bulletproof on this point. So Jesus goes after him next, and he says, verse 12, Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. So let me just pause here to say, you can invite your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors, your brothers and sisters. You can invite your friends to a party. It looks like this says you can't. And in fact, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's just making a contrast here. So, uh, but, but the contrast, it shouldn't really surprise us either. The contrast is between those who can pay you back and those who can't. And we always see Jesus' heart for the, for the have-nots, right? For the broken, for the people on the fringe, for the, the, the single mom, for the, for the orphan, for the poor, for the leper, for the prostitute. He's always going to those that other people will not hang out with. And he's saying, these are the people uh, that we need to love. So, what's going on here? At one level, this could sound like um, social etiquette advice, like Emily Post kind of things. When you go to a party, sit here, not here, this will work better for you. We could, we could spice it up a little bit and say, no, it's a little bit more like Machiavelli because you're doing this so that you do get elevated. It's self-serving in the end. We could, we could sort of put them together and say it's sort of Dale Carnegie stuff. You, you want to be Machiavelli, but you want to do it in a nice way, smiling at everybody so that they think you're somebody that you're not and you'll get elevated. Um, is this just good social advice? No. Now, it is good social advice. And uh, I cannot ever read this without being reminded of the time that I, I unwittingly violated this and was, I'm still traumatized by it. But I, uh, in college, I was involved in, in student government, and I was asked to come make a presentation at a, um, some, some event that was going to include some of the trustees and the university administrators and the presidents of the alumni clubs and all these people. This was not a crowd I ran with. I was very intimidated by this. I was given three minutes I showed up early. I worked forever on my three minutes. I showed up early. I went into the room where it was going to be held. And I went 
I've been in meetings in this room, and the head of the table is always here. So I went in, I got there early, and I sat at what I thought was, erroneously, the foot of the table. Nobody's there. I'm sitting at the foot of the table. Somebody comes in, one of the vice presidents. We talk for a little bit, and he goes, Mike, I think you would be better at the other end of the table. So I said things like, again, no, no, I got here early so I could sit here. I... There's no way I'm moving to the other end of the table. I know my place. Trust me, it's here, right? I mean, it's just like. And then people start filing in. I don't know anybody. Everybody's sitting down. At the last minute, here comes the president and the chairman of the trustee and the provost. And there's, there's only two seats, right? Because I'm in one of the seats for them. And when I realize what's going on, I try and get up. The provost is like, no, 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 Mike, you sit there. I'll go stand in the corner. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. So, in my defense, I thought I was following Christ's dictum, but I was just clueless. And, uh, yeah. So, there is good social advice here. You want to uh, avoid that. But this is not social etiquette advice. This is a parable. There is a deep spiritual truth being revealed here. And the spiritual truth has to do with issues of pride and humility. Now, we've talked about pride frequently because it's a topic that comes up frequently in the Bible. And usually when I talk about pride, I I make at least two points. One, this is a complicated topic because people use the word pride to describe a number of different things. At one end, we've got the, you know, ugly, obnoxious racial prejudice statements uh, that, that involve pride. And we've got the, the clueless narcissistic statements. And then we sort of move down the line and we've got patriotism. And then we've also got the, the joy a parent feels when their young child makes a good choice, right? And we use the word pride to describe all of that. And so we also use it to describe self-esteem, which itself is a very complicated topic. I, I'm convinced lots of people who are, lots of people who have no self-esteem in a negative way, get depressed because they don't have a proper understanding of who they are. But some people are, are actually depressed for the opposite reason. They have such high self-esteem that they're not being treated the way they should be. All of this is complicated. So pride is a difficult topic, and we have to listen very carefully and think very clearly when we go after it. The second reason, the second point I make when I talk about pride is that um, it's insidious, and you often can't see it, and so you have to attack it through the back door. I have a friend who has uh, pride issues, and uh, we've pointed this out to him for 25 years, and uh, eventually he said, you know what, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a Bible study on pride, and uh, I'll own this. And so he calls me later on, and he says, I've done this Bible study on pride, and I go, yeah, and, and what do you think? He goes, oh, I'm learning a lot. Good. Good. And he says, I'm seeing a lot of things. He goes, this Bible study I'm doing, this is priceless. Good. He goes, you really need my notes. He goes, you could give a great sermon if you use my notes. And I'm like, okay. Uh, so I laugh at that, and then I realized that I do that all the time, just not out loud, right? I recognize that I'm being proud. I recognize that I'm feeling better about myself or better than somebody. And then I go, okay, that's sin. And I'm confessing that as sin. 
And I find myself going, you know, it's really good that I can see this in myself, right? And you go, okay, that's, that's pride. So, I, Father, forgive me for that. And then, but I am bringing it to you, right? So it's like, okay, no, I got to. So I just, it's like, okay, it's so deep in me, right? That all I can do is say, it's there and I can't deal with it. And I just need to confess how deep this runs within me. And by the way, I'm being very humble now, and I'm feeling good about being humble. So I'm confessing that also. You can't just go right at pride because it, it results, in, it results in, in more pride. So I've made those two points in the past with some frequency. There's a new point that's getting made here by Jesus. And it's, it's not just a recitation of the old stuff. Jesus actually gives us counsel to move out of this. And his counsel is this. Humble yourself. Right? Humble yourself. That's your option. The way up is down. Right? The way to get ahead in the kingdom of God is to serve. Go to the end of the line. Consider the needs of others more important than yourself. We're going to get this counsel throughout the Bible. But we get it with Jesus in his teaching and in his example. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Right? I'm going to wash the feet of my followers. Jesus continued to go to the end of the line in so many different ways. And he calls on us to do this. Now, you have to understand that uh, we're not, there's nothing wrong with being honored. There's nothing wrong with exaltation. Right? We're, we're told to honor our parents. And, and we're told to honor God. And in heaven, we're going to honor Jesus. There's nothing inherently wrong with honor. It's when we are promoting ourselves that we are, we are actually setting ourselves up for a bigger fall because God will humble the proud, right? So we, and the other thing, you have to understand, we're never asked to do something against our own best interest. We just don't understand what our best interest is. <laughs> we think that the way up is up. And it's not. And so Jesus keeps saying, no, the way to get ahead ultimately is to serve. And Jesus, again, is our example. Philippians 2, the classic high Christology passage, one of the earliest hymns we have. We're told about Jesus, right? That although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming a slave, and not just a slave, but a slave that went to his death, and not just his death, but death on the cross. But then it goes on to say, therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the point here is, we're told that whole package comes where Paul says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you should. Instead, have the attitude of Jesus, who, although he was God, humbles himself, and then God exalts him. And that is not just an illustration of the point. That's the point. That's the principle that is in place. And one day it will be clear that when we go this way, we will get knocked down. But when we serve, when we love, when we consider the needs of others more, more important than ourselves, we are actually storing up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. We need to be humble. So I would encourage you to uh, try, at least occasionally, weekly, if not daily, to just review what's going on and say, what would it have looked like 
if I had been more humble today? How would I have acted? How could I do that? I would encourage you again to not focus just on pride, but to focus on Jesus. If we focus on God, if we focus on Christ, right, then eventually as he comes into greater clarity, we see ourselves more accurately. <laughs> and we come in down here. And, and then there is a natural humility that develops. Again, it's not a self-defeating one. It's not that, that we, we are all morose. But we just, we just get the gospel, and we see God for who he is, and there's a humility that comes, and a thankfulness and a joy that he knows the worst about me, and he's still for me. Another thing that we can do, and we're going to do it now, is you can, with regularity, come again to the table of, uh, of Holy Communion, in which two big truths are being advertised every time we come to Communion. One of them is that God loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me. The other one is, I was so broken that the only way God could rescue me was to send his son to die for me. Right? Those two big ideas are held in tension when we come to the table. And uh, it, it gives us a joy, but it also gives us a, a, a rightness about understanding who we are. And this first parable says, humble yourselves. Right? Do not... Push yourself into the good chairs. Go to the back. So let me pray for us as we come to this table. Lord God Almighty, thank you again for um, the insights that you provide for us about how things work, should work, how we should live. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, the humility that you displayed in accepting the assignment that you did. And thank you for the teaching that is so powerful and that, um, that we can see when we sit with this long enough. Help us to become more and more like you. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name.